Well, uh, after spending several days really just uncertain whether I should pull out my hair or bang my head against the wall or just scream and rage at the total unnecessary dimension to all of this. This is a tragedy that, you know, I, I don't think ever needed to happen. It is the sort of thing that generally does not happen in other parts of the world. It is specific to the United States. This is Tom Fox. In perhaps our most somber podcast ever, Matt and I take a look at compliance and leadership lessons from the recent tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 elementary school children and two teachers were massacred by a gunman. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. Today, we have perhaps the most somber podcast we uh, have ever done and hopefully will we'll ever do, because today we're going to talk about lessons from uh, Uvalde. Uh, for those who just arrived from Mars, Uvalde had a school massacre last week where 19 children and two teachers were killed by a shooter who came in the school with an AR-15 rifle. So, Matt, uh, we both had some time to reflect on this. I think we've gone through multiple stages of emotions, anger, rage, um, perhaps some detachment. uh, And I think we're both at the place now where we feel like we can try to articulate some important lessons for the compliance professional going forward. So maybe I could ask you, uh, you you, uh, posted on this. Uh, today, and I thought it was a, a very well thought out, uh, very somber, uh, but important post. So how did you get to the point where you could write that? Well, uh, after spending several days really just uncertain whether I should pull out my hair or bang my head against the wall or just scream and rage at the total unnecessary dimension to all of this, this is a tragedy to that you know I, I don't think ever needed to happen. It is the sort of thing that generally does not happen in other parts of the world. It is specific to the United States. And uh, it hits close to home to me personally because my wife is a teacher in an elementary school. I have children who are roughly the same age as these victims. And so this is the sort of thing I think about quite often and uh, really to great distress when these things actually do happen. Um and I know some people are going to say, is it really appropriate to do a compliance analysis on something so terrible as this shooting? Uh, I actually would say, yes, it is, because these were 19 children and two teachers who lost their lives because we, a society, a school district, a town, a state, a country, we uh, screwed it up. And they got killed because of this. So we have a duty to try and figure out and squeeze every bit of wisdom we can out of this. And so there are some lessons that you can learn or think about as a compliance officer. Some of them are going to be, I think, rather practical and I almost might say mundane, um, given the severity of what has happened. And I think there are also some very big lessons about what we are doing wrong here as a society and a country to allow this sort of risk to keep on happening. But um, we are where we are, and we would be remiss if we did not think about how did we get this wrong so we can try and make sure it does not happen again. 
Matt, you articulated those thoughts quite well in your blog post. Uh, I guess I finally came down on we need to look at history, we need to look at life, we need to look at culture for lessons because that's what happens to everyone, including compliance officers. And this is unfortunately a part of that. Uh, We both talked about other conflicts, military conflicts and other situations where we drew lessons or inspiration from. Uh, So I think it's certainly appropriate we we do it here. Um, Let me go back to your blog post, Matt, because you started off with a control and uh, how the failure of one control at least contributed. So uh, I'm going to have some thoughts on that in a, in a different direction after uh, you talk about that. But what was that control and what happened? So the, the thing that jumped out to me first is probably the smallest detail here was that uh, at some point on May 24th, the day of the shooting, Uh, a teacher had propped open a rear door to the school for some brief period of time. Uh, As of today that you and I are recording Monday or Tuesday, Tuesday, May 31st, we don't know exactly why the door was propped open, but it was not supposed to be propped open. The doors were supposed to be kept closed and locked at all times. Now, right around, according to security footage that authorities have reviewed, right around 1127, the teacher propped open the door uh, at roughly the same time, the shooter, Salvador Ramos, he had crashed his vehicle into a ditch right next to the school and had begun shooting people outside. Uh, and then he came into the school through that open door, which should have been locked. I am not here to blame this teacher. Uh, I do not believe the teacher is at fault. I don't think if the door was shut, it would have made one bit of difference to somebody with an AR-15 who could easily blow a hole through a locked door and prior school shootings, that is exactly what's happened with other kids who have had AR-15s. So this is not the teacher's fault, but it is an interesting point as to why the door was not noticed to be open. And are there ways that you can have a procedure and a policy? We shall not leave doors propped open. They shall be closed and locked at all times, which is something any corporate organization might have that policy. How do you build a control that makes it easy to follow that policy? So I was thinking through things like, could you have doors that uh, automatically lock behind you and then you just pass a key card next to the lock and it automatically opens, which you see at a lot of corporate campuses. I've seen at some elementary schools. Um, could you have a some sort of a sensor when a door is left open inappropriately? Uh, central security office notices so you can go and investigate. Um, yeah, you know, and I just want to stress: we don't know why this teacher opened the door. Maybe they had a what seemed like a reasonable reason, such as poor ventilation in the school, and they were looking to circulate air. Maybe it was a very reasonable. Uh, reasons such as they heard this crash, they knew Ramos was nearby, and they're preparing for an emergency evacuation. Um, I have not seen any specific reason why this door was left open, and I'm not going to get into all of that. The point of it is that occasionally you will have a policy and a procedure, and you have to think through what are the controls that I would use to be able to make that policy easy to follow. That's the the abstract issue that compliance officers and internal auditors would want to be thinking about. How do controls and policies support each other, not just exist separately from each other? 
And so I'm going to use a different example I heard at a, at a different conference, uh, but it's essentially the, uh, the same fact pattern. Uh, a DOD facility uh, had a receptionist uh, 24-7 because they received deliveries. The swing receptionist, uh, 4 p.m. to midnight, uh, was sick, and they didn't bring in a replacement. A lot of people work late, and one of their traditions was to order pizza. So they ordered pizza. Uh, the guy comes in. He calls up. They come down and get the pizza. And um, the people who got the pizza left because it wasn't their job to escort him off the property. It was the job of the swing night receptionist. Uh, somehow this delivery driver um, follows the person who bought the pizza and uh, in walking down a hall, when someone inside a uh, secure door inside the facility walked by with their key card, uh, a light came on, a red light came on, and he thought that was the exit. So he enters into a secure facility and all sorts of mayhem arises. Well, it was the root cause analysis that uh, they didn't uh, get a temporary receptionist, the swing shift receptionist in, or the person who got the pizzas didn't know they had to escort this person off site. So those sorts of uh, controls can actually be safety issues. And we need to think about those uh, as well. You brought up uh, an interesting point that I want to use to lead into your next series of observations. And unfortunately that was on uh, police failures one of which was on communication. So say the door has a switch or some sort of sensor goes in the principal's office and there is noted on the light board, the door's open, but now you have to communicate that to the relevant persons. What did you see uh, from the police response that gave you pause in that area? Lots of things. Um, you know, the really the 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 prompt open door pales in significance to the issues we have with the Uvalde police and how they responded here. Uh, I had two big lessons, I think, that we should consider about the police. And I'm going to start with the more generous explanation, which I still find highly suspect, but I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt for now that um, the Uvalde police, as most people I think now know, entered the building while the shooter Ramos was in a classroom and he was shooting up students and teachers. And then they stayed in the hallway outside of the classroom where Ramos was for more than an hour. While students were inside the classroom calling 911 saying, please send the police in now. And the police did not go in. So why not? Well, the first answer we received was that the police did not think there was anybody left alive in those classrooms. So in that case, they didn't want to rush in when they were probably outgunned and outmanned by a shooter who was carrying an assault weapon and body armor. And they reasonably, under their situation, might have figured, well, if there is nobody left to save, we should not endanger police officers. Now, none of that was actually true there were students calling up 911. So if we give the police the benefit of the doubt that they did not receive the information about the students, that is a failure of information and communication. And as almost preposterous as it sounds, the COSO internal control framework actually has a principle on this precise point 
that uh, I'll read it out. The organization internally communicates information, including objectives and responsibilities for internal control necessary to support the functioning of internal control. Now, that's a very anodyne way of saying when you have information about a risk that has to be handed off to a decision maker, you got to hand it off to the decision maker. And the more pressing the risk, the more immediately you need to get that information to the right people. And let's assume for a moment that they didn't get this 911 information. Well, how? How on earth did the incident commander not get reports from dispatch saying there are still students in there. They are still alive. They are calling for help. Go in. Apparently, that didn't happen. And it is a reminder to us that, you know, you need to think through what are your most pressing risks? What are your crisis scenarios? When you have a crisis, what information would you want to relay to whom, by what channels? You have to test that. The more high risk the information or the more important the information, the higher the risk, the more immediate that communication has to be, which means it pretty much has to be fail safe. So that is something that, again, internal control officers, internal audit executives, risk managers could think about is look at your communication systems, your policies, your procedures to make sure that how does this information reach the right people at the critical times. And I'll just stop right there because that's lesson number one about the police is maybe we had an information failure. But like I said, like many people, I don't believe that is true. But if it was true, that's the lesson here about information and communication. So your next point revolves around culture. And it was a very frank discussion. I won't presuppose to ask you how difficult it was to write that. But um, to me, it was a very heartfelt discussion around culture. What did you see culturally that we at least need to discuss around this issue? I, I Well, I think, I suspect, the police did know there, there were children in that classroom who were calling 911 who were still alive. And I think they knew that Ramos was in there shooting them and they didn't go in. That seems to be where the evidence is pointing so far. I am glad to see the Justice Department is going to investigate this uh, debacle, moment by moment, I hope, to figure out exactly what went wrong. But I have deep concerns that a lot of police, maybe not a lot, that might not be the the right word, but too many police departments have sort of lost the plot of why they are here. They are here to serve and protect. And implicit in that is the idea that you might need to sacrifice your life, your risk, your life in the line of duty to protect civilians. And I don't think many police officers would disagree with that. I think they would say, yes, that's part of the job. And we get that. At the same time, it certainly seems like we have drifted away from the serve and protect mission to something that's more akin to, as somebody on Twitter I saw, they described it as dominate and survive the threat. And if there is collateral damage, well, okay. Um, And we have seen this before. We have seen police misconduct where inevitably it seems like they are more interested in dominating and proving that they are in charge. And if they can't dominate at that exact moment, they will wait for reinforcements to be able to proceed with dominating whatever the threat is. And the rest of us who might be in the orbit of that confrontation might have to pay the price. That certainly seems like what has happened here. 
And you know, if you really want a troubling example of what I mean by the dominate and survive, uh, think of Derek Chauvin, who was the police officer who murdered George Floyd, and watch that video of how he sneered at and glared at pedestrians while he was choking the life out of George Floyd, basically showing them and daring them to say, I am the one in charge and I'm going to do this. And this is the darker side of policing. And it is a very seductive perversion of the serve and protect mission. And I, I think we have to wonder about you know, who within the police departments in this country have sort of succumbed to that allure of dominate and survive or rather than say serve and protect um it really does look like these police officers were afraid to take on a very formidable challenge and because they weren't going to dominate maybe they weren't maybe they were not going to be able to subdue george ram um subdue salvador ramos uh, and maybe some of them would get killed because he has an assault rifle because he has body armor so they waited and if there were children still in there and they had to let them stay in there, then so be it. I don't know if that is what the case is, but it certainly seems like what I've seen from facts and thing, clips on social media. It seems to be pointing that direction. And we need to talk about this and whether or not police departments or police officers are drifting away from the serve and protect mission. And what gets me most is that we here who are now shocked to entertain the idea that maybe police officers are a bit cowardly and are more interested in dominating, we who are shocked to think about that today is really just the white people who are confused and shocked and dismayed at that maybe we have to entertain this. We should remember that black Americans in this, they have had to deal with this unease about police for years and years and years, and I do not blame them for it. But we have to have a frank discussion about what is going wrong with police, that they are spending boatloads on militarization. All of this, you know, Uvalde had a SWAT team, which didn't do its job. They had armored personnel carriers, which they didn't need. And when they did need to go in and protect a bunch of 10-year-olds, they didn't. How did we get here? How were they trained? How did they understand what their mission was? And was their mission... The perception of their mission somehow drifted off from serve and protect, even if that means you have to risk your life to serve the people you are there to protect, which in this case were just a bunch of 10-year-olds and their teachers. In addition to that issue bubbling up in Uvalde, that actually happened at Parkland in Florida as well, where officers turned away from going in to the building. So this is not the first time we've seen this. And I'd like to add uh, a couple of other issues before uh, we get to ethical values and ethical priorities. Uh, the first one is the need for clear leadership, clear lines of communication and lines of authority. At a press conference, well, first of all, it has not been made clear who is actually in charge of this site. Mm -hmm. I One report said that the person who made the decision or whose decision it was to move into the building was, and get this, the chief of police of the Uvalde School District. I find that absolutely preposterous. We had a city chief of police and a county chief of police. We had state authorities uh, here in Texas, the Department of Public Safety, what you guys would say, stateies, on site. We also had federal authorities on site in the form of Border Protection, who are uh, eventually stormed the room where the uh, shooter was in. So we had multiple law enforcement agencies, and it's never been made clear who was in charge. 
it was probably not clear on the site. So um, you have to have clear lines of authority, which leads me to point two. In any corporate setting, you have to prepare for emergencies. You have to have a protocol in place and you have to follow that protocol because if you have to make decisions on the fly, you're liable to make a poor decision, even if you've made a decision. And the example I will give you here is my father once told me a story that happened to him in the U.S. Navy. My father, God rest his soul, said he was on a DDE, that's destroyer escort, and uh, off uh, north, what's now North Korea during the Korean War. His uh, ship took shelling. They got hit below the waterline. They were sinking, and the captain couldn't make a decision. And my father had to go below decks and shut men below, lock bulkheads and shut men below to save the ship from sinking. And how do you know when someone can respond to a true emergency? Unfortunately, it's when the emergency happens, but uh, you've got to train for that emergency. Whether that emergency is something this tragic, whether that is a corporate emergency where you've been, a uh, whistleblower report comes up that someone's engaging in accounting fraud or other criminal conduct, you have to prepare for that. And you have to prepare for what your response is, who is on the team and who are the decision makers. And you do that with a protocol. And finally, when the ultimate leader of whatever the organization is, whether that's a corporation or in this case, the great state of Texas, which is the governor of the state of Texas, if you have a tragedy, you have to respond to that tragedy and you have to let people know you're responding to that tragedy. Unfortunately, Greg Abbott, after having been briefed on the massacre, went and held a fundraiser that afternoon. That's not responding to the tragedy. Um, won't even get to his NRA speech, but I will criticize him for going to a fundraiser that afternoon when he is the voice and representative of the people of the state of Texas. He needs to be out front, at least showing compassion. We didn't see that. Unless you think that doesn't happen in the corporate world, I would point you to two examples. Tony Hayward, who was CEO of British Petroleum or BP during Deepwater Horizon, two weeks after the accident, flew to England to engage in a yacht race because he wanted to get his life back. Well, he seemed forgotten about all the people who died on Macondo under his watch. Uh, he was much more concerned about his yacht races. Uh, he's no longer the CEO of BP. And another former CEO, John Stumpf from Wells Fargo, who when the original Wells Fargo fraudulent sales corruption scandal broke, um, said that, oh, this, this, is, this is not us. This is not who we are. Um, and went on national television denying that Wells Fargo had a um, culture of corruption in the form of false sales and false fraudulent accounts leading to false sales in their corporation. So this does happen in the corporate world. And you've got to lead at that moment of crisis. And you've got to show empathy. And we didn't see that from our leaders no. in this situation. Um, but you didn't end your blog post on that. You ended, you went in a little bit different direction and that's the difference in ethical values and ethical priorities. What did you, uh, tell us about that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, 
as much as I appreciate and think there is some value in all of the lessons you and I have just covered, the plain fact is all of those lessons are kind of superseded by, you know, we accept the world where mass shootings are okay. That, you know, this, this is what we have decided as a country is that um, mass shootings are going to be a part of life. So therefore think about these controls or these policies or these trainings. That's ridiculous. That is stupid. I mean, the, the key lesson here for anybody is that we have dysfunctional governance that won't confront gun violence in this country. And really, if we want to do what every compliance piece of guidance I've seen about corporate compliance programs, every piece of guidance says what you should do to get to the root of a problem is perform a root cause analysis. And we're not doing that because clearly the root cause is easy access to guns, period. We are the only Western nation in the world one of the only nations in the world where this sort of thing happens is a routine matter, of course. This does not happen in Japan. It does not happen in Canada. It does not happen in Europe. It does not happen in Australia. It does not happen in China. And I could go on for another 20 goddamn minutes about where it does not happen. This only happens here in the United States because our gun laws are loose and easy. In fact, I think it's Quite interesting to note that the shooter here, Salvador Ramos, uh, he had wanted to buy assault weapons earlier, but he had to wait until he is 18. And he turned 18 on, I think it was May 16. And then he went and he bought his rifles, which means actually right up until the moment he started shooting, he was a law abiding citizen because Texas has poor gun laws. And so do much of the uh, many other states in this country. Um, it is worth noting, we haven't even discussed the terrible shooting that was in Buffalo the prior week where, same thing, the shooter there went and bought uh, assault weapons only when he was legally able to do so, which tells me these laws are weak. They are the problem. And I think most Americans would agree with that. Most Americans, Democrat, Independent, Republican, anybody else, would say that, no, we should have really tight uh, restrictions on who should own an assault weapon, even perhaps not having them at all, which was the case for many years. And in recently as the 90s into the early 2000s, we had a ban on the sale of assault weapons. And you know what? The Republic was perfectly fine then. So we had this inability to do a root cause analysis. And why is that? Because the Republican Party in this country, and very specifically the elected Republican lawmakers here, have a different set of ethical priorities where they value money and power and control more than public safety. That's it. So they are more than happy to take money from the NRA and from the gun lobby and to prevent us from passing sensible gun safety laws that most Americans in this country want. But this minority who are woefully out of step with real Americans think that it is okay to have gun violence here if that means more power and money for me. That is somebody like Greg Abbott. It is somebody like Ted Cruz. It is somebody like Donald Trump. I could probably go on for another half hour. Even the great and lofty Mitt Romney, who in many ways comes across as the only in Republican with any ethics and integrity out there, has accepted more money from the NRA over the last 10 years or so than any other Republican official. And they all sit around wondering what on earth they could do and wringing their hands. They know exactly what they could do, but it's not important to them. What is important to them is money and power, not safety of the public. 
So we often in compliance world talk about ethical values. And I do say that that term is a bit misfocused. It's not about the values because Republicans actually do have some sort of awareness that public safety is a good ethical value. I don't think they're opposed to public safety, but they are more interested in money and power. So they're not going to allow gun safety issues to come up for a vote. And until we dislodge these Republicans, Mitch McConnell being another one, we are going to allow this to continue. This is really a problem of misgovernance at our national level. This is a problem of misplaced and misordered ethical priorities that money and power are more important to Republicans than public safety. And because of that, the root cause of all of the violence here, which is just easy access to guns. So like I said in my blog post, everybody in this situation failed. The voters, the lawmakers, the police, the school department, every single group failed, except, and this is the heartbreaking part, the only people who did their duty were the teachers who gave their lives trying to protect their students and the students themselves who are locked in a room with a madman and calling police and nothing else happened. They were the only two ones who were doing the right thing Everybody else, all of us, we failed them. And Tom, this is the most upsetting I have ever been in a long, long time. I'm just going to add or perhaps close with, if you're thinking about relocating your company to Texas, over the past four years, we've had a massacre at a Walmart. We had a massacre at a Baptist church. We've had a massacre at a high school. And now we've had a massacre at an elementary school. I want to ask your employees if they're going to shop worship or send their kids to school before you move to Texas. Um, we started out saying this is uh, the most somber pod we've ever done. Hopefully it will ever be. I think it's ended that way. I hope we don't have to discuss this again, but I'm afraid we will. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance in the Weeds. We're going to link to Matt's blog post in the show notes. I hope you will check that out as well. I hope you'll join Matt and I again for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds next week. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.